0: So as some of us are aware, we are going through a intense evolutionary pressure, I won't use the word crisis, Uh, intense evolutionary pressure probably the crisis part is largely over in the previous century but there is tremendous pressure. Sometime back I was uh, hearing um, someone had sent a small WhatsApp clip where uh, a person was challenging the view that evolution will take place further. And the rationale he gave was that uh, evolution takes place through challenges. And there are no challenges now for human beings to evolve. Either he was not aware of the climate change and other outer challenges that we have ourselves created for our own evolution, this is something very interesting. Uh, And at the same time, with the coming of man, the challenges are becoming more and more uniquely inward. This is something unique to us because the first stage of evolution which takes place uh, up to the animal level, it it takes place largely unconsciously. An animal is not self-aware to the extent we are. Some beginning of self-awareness starts in um, the higher mammals. But the real self-awareness with us, we become aware of a subjective inner space and inner dimension which throws up its own unique challenges. For example, we don't uh, necessarily suffer only because there are weather changes. We also suffer because of the thought of the weather changes. It's not only our own, but also, you know, people across the globe, I mean. Today I was watching the news that there is a heat wave going on in Europe and my thoughts went to all my friends that what they must be experiencing heat wave because we know what it is. So just this thought begins to create unique challenges. This is the essence of a humanness. The other aspect is that um, as we evolve, the footprints of the past stages continue to exist within us. They don't vanish So, very often this uh, idea, some people often ask uh, that, you know, we went to Auroville thinking it's a utopia (laughs) because, you know, you see see a video clipping and you uh, believe it's a utopia and you come there. Same thing applies to ashram. So, um, I tell them that it's a utopia, just add three more words in the making. And uh, each of us got to contribute our bit. And even if it's a perfect utopia… And I am not ready for it, I have not changed inside, and I walk into a real utopia, I won't enjoy it. Because, well, I have to be fit and ready to understand what a utopia is. Utopia is not a wishful thinking. So because of all these things and above all the increasing evolutionary pressure, which animals don't experience in this way, we experience not only the past layer and the environmental challenges, but man has in him, as shobindo says, an incorrigible something. So it's never satisfied with its own present state, and there is in him a constant pressure to move up, move up. Uh, in ignorance it is mistranslated as uh, in the form of ambition, outer achievement. But as we grow more and more aware, it's an inner state towards which we climb. It's we are programmed for evolution. Actually, and we can't help it. That's how human beings are programmed. So it creates unique challenges. And as um, Dan was pointing out, in a place like Auroville and ashram, the pressure is much more intense. Uh, Also, because uh, there is no one way to live here. You know, there are places where there is a very recognized norm. Even when it is said we don't have norms, there are norms. There are rules, regulations, norms. So. Uh, more or less people adjust to that, they live in conformity, knowingly, unknowingly. But more and more we are entering an age of individuality, so the conformism is breaking down, that's one part, necessary part of evolution, one of the challenges. At the same time, in a place like Auroville, which is meant for evolution, we are yet to discover what is the new normalcy. So... (laughs) Uh, no one can define the new normalcy. You know, uh, we are no more what we are meant to be and we are not yet what we should be. You know, long back there used to be an advertisement of Amul chocolate and it used to say, I am too old for this and too young for this, but I am just right for Amul chocolate. But life is not an Amul chocolate. That's the only difference. You know, it's it's a real-time challenge. So we are discovering our new normalcy and it will take a while, maybe... A century or two, a state of confusion because the old is gone, the new is, uh, one can feel it. But not yet, like you know, we wake up at night and we feel, oh it's going to be morning, just an inner sense. So if somebody says, have you seen the sun? No, I have not yet seen the sun. I I don't see the light, but I know, I feel it's morning, of course we can see the time. But there is a sense of a coming dawn which is um, showing itself up in children, But that's a different area altogether. But at the same time, we feel the pressures of the night like an evolutionary drag drawing us back. Let's sleep a little more. Let's sleep a little more. It's not yet morning. So, you know, this is the kind of challenge that we are experiencing. And among these challenges uh, we encounter because of our past evolution, one of them is anger. There are others also. It reflects, as I said, the footprints remain even in our brain wiring it reflects. So, very often people say anger is an emotion. It's not an emotion. Even biologically, it's not an emotion. It's a mistake to call it an emotion. Biologically, anger is um, through a small little tiny, teeny-weeny area in the brain, but devastating (laughs) and it's called the amygdala. So, that's uh, part of the reptilian brain, you know. Uh, so it's like a little snake in the, inside us sleeping and that can get triggered by many things. Many triggers of the, uh, as I said, in, it's not just the outer triggers. In animal life it is given for self-preservation. So it's perfectly fine. So we see that if you approach an animal's den, uh, then he becomes suddenly like a rage A cobra will raise its foot or another animal will show threatening gestures. Even cats and dogs, if you get too close and if they feel threatened, they will make threatening gestures. It's something self-preservative. And it has effects on the body. Actually, the adrenaline is released, the hypothalamus becomes active, the heart beats faster, the muscles have more blood, etc., etc. The pupils dilate. It's meant to meet the aggression. And when the aggression is gone, you move away from that territory, it all comes down. Mother gives this beautiful example of when she was meditating in um, Algeria and suddenly she feels uneasy and opens her eyes and sees a cobra right there with the hood. And she says, what have I done to make the cobra angry? Now this is a very interesting example I always feel because look at it, uh, the example of the divine mother, she is not blaming the cobra, (laughs) she is, (laughs) uh, we so readily blame human beings. You did this, therefore I got angry. Now here is the Divine Mother saying, what have I done to make the cobra angry? <laughs> so it's a very illustrative example. I, I, I find it very inspiring. And then she realizes that she is sitting inadvertently on a little um, place where the cobra used to live. She was meditating below a tree. And the cobra had its home there. So without threatening the cobra, looking into it the eyes, she gently moves little by little. And it's enough for the cobra to understand that she doesn't mean to occupy my house, you see. They can be also possessive to an extent. <laughs> and so the moment she does it, it um, Mother describes so beautifully, it dropped its head and turned back and went into the pool. Oh, what a beauty. This is, uh, I, I find in it uh, so many hints for uh, looking at life, you know, when people are angry Uh, next moment they can be very beautiful people they can actually be very beautiful people at heart and we take a picture snapshot of that moment and stick it into our heads and permanently label them you know anger prone making it worse more and more so that's our role in uh, perpetuating what we call as uh, uh, evil in the world so nevertheless this is a small little portion now in human beings it's not just self-preservation. As I said, it gets mixed up with many things because now many other things have come up which we don't find in animals, like the play of desires. Animals have instinct for food and uh, mating, but in, animal, uh, in human beings, there is something called as desire which is in season and out of season. So we have um, a python or a you know anaconda will swallow a prey and for one month it will be quiet. You can walk over it, it won't do anything. But uh, human beings will have a good meal and then they see a new restaurant and they want to go next day (laughs) to try out something else, overeat with desire, all this greed and everything has come up, uh, which gives to the force of anger a tremendous momentum. It's like it adds like a fuel and that makes it terrible. So because if you look at the beautiful way the Gita describes it, it speaks about the psychology of anger. And um, you know, among all the enemies of the soul, as the calls it, anger is very high on the list in the in the Gita. and it says that you know when the senses move on the objects, and then the mind gets associated, there is one attachment. and with that attachment there is desire. with desire comes frustration because when you have it, You are afraid of losing it. When you don't have it, in any case, you are feeling the urge. And when that desire is blocked, there is this sense of anger. And then, you know, it's a very powerful passage, uh, something worth remembering all the time, that with anger comes clouding and confusion. And with clouding and confusion and a state of delusion, there is a loss of memory of the self. Even those who have been living in, a state of uh, beaut- beautiful state, suddenly there is a confusion. You know, there are so many instances in Indian thought of is getting angry and cursing people. Now obviously it's not a very healthy state. And <laughs> so, people say, oh Vedic rishis were the best. Uh, I say, no, excuse me, no, they were not the best. The best is yet to come. They were prone to anger, they were prone to issues, but yes, they were wanting something very beautiful. That aspiration they have communicated to us. But the perfection has not yet come. So, you know, even a sage can get clouded in his mind and he forgets the, uh, he he becomes forgetful and with that the Gita says, your intelligent will, if one indulges in it, the intelligent will can be completely destroyed, which means thwarting our chances of evolution in a certain lifetime. It's a very serious thing, much more serious than we can imagine. And all this starts because in us humans, we have something called as desires. Now, anger is not just at a desire level in human beings of course it's not desirable <laughs> but uh, uh, not only because of desire but also because of emotions uh, you know how easy it is for love to turn into hate and um, so when shobhinanda was asked that uh, are you against human relationship he said no not at all i just that i don't want to see it broken at every step so i want something more beautiful how beautifully he puts it that you know when people have relationship based on ignorance and ego and desired self it gets broken and look how it happened the same love which made people dance around the trees makes people dance around the courts and who benefits well the lawyer of course but uh, i don't know if anybody else benefits or not so so this is the emotion getting associated and then of course uh, and we know people burn literally the chest can burn and heave the breathing becomes heavy because the anger is now uh, rising from below from the feet and the limbs and not only gripping the abdomen but also gripping the heart and the chest area it's uh, you know this kind of anger is known there are medical studies it predisposes one to an increased risk of heart attacks cerebrovascular accident it's a known thing these are these things have been actually studied with an extreme anger there are also documented reports where extreme anger can lead to sudden death simply because there is a cascade of inner events uh, you know we, uh, intense anger overwhelming emotion uh, we know how Shurabindu's father he himself died you know he got the news that um, the ship in which his son is coming had sunk and for two days he went through a cascading you know internal and um, events which affected his body and after two days he uh, passed away with name of shurbindo on his lips so the name part is something very beautiful thinking of shurbindo and with his name on his lips he dies but it has serious effects on on the human body which uh, we have we are yet to take full cognizance of it's a tremendous stress and then anger can attack the mind not so common but it can the whole You know, people who have experienced anger, how intensely the head can become heated up and it's just trying to burst out, either through speech or in some form because it's now climbed to the head and all the thoughts take that pattern. So now anger is, now this is a critical level. The chain reaction has reached a point, boiling point, where something should be done otherwise uh, it's going to blow up. So this is how anger starts right from, as I said, there are three levels in the brain. One is the reptilian brain where we see first hints, uh, rage and there is a small little nucleus. But there is also the emotional brain which what, you know, marks the higher mammals, the limbic system. And there is still higher, uh, the, the rational brain and other faculties which have come up. So normally evolution means that from above we control the lower. As the mother says, first be reasonable. Leave aside the psychicization and other things. Be reasonable. But um, usually when reason appears first and the discerning intellect appears first, it's like a new entrant to a house. You know, just as there is ragging when, I don't know, uh, now it is there or not, but when somebody comes new, so there is a ragging which takes place through which uh, in colleges... Uh, people learn the ways of that particular college. They get familiar and then they become friends. So, or when a new lady comes into the house in Indian families, you know, when a man marries and brings the lady to the house, initially she has to work like day and night as if she is at the mercy of everyone. But don't worry, she is smart enough. Very soon, she knows how to take control. She starts by taking control of the man by her side. (laughs) And through that, everything else gets controlled. But there is a period when the new entrant which is meant to actually control is controlled. So there is a whole stage of evolution when reason is used to justify anger. Reason is used to justify greed. Reason is used to justify everything that we do in in our life. It means it has just been born. We have not developed it. And that's why one of the things in yoga is to first take take out this faculty. If you read through synthesis yoga of self-perfection, Shabindu says one of the first things is to learn to take out this intelligent will, buddhi, as it is called, and keep it apart, which means never to justify it. That's the first step. The very first step in controlling anger is not breathing techniques. Breathing techniques are very temporary and we can come to that, but not to justify. Well, I got angry, nobody else is responsible for it. What happens within me? I am responsible and no one else. So this, once we do that, we start taking charge of life. Not like those, you know, when someone, uh, Svabindra in one of the aphorisms, right? Uh, talking of some medieval ascetics, that, who had labeled that women are bad. Why? Because they make people fall. So they say, is it the woman's fault or your So beautifully puts it. It's your fault. You can't blame somebody. This is one of the first things about taking charge of one's life. Assuming responsibility. And that's a sign of maturity. If I am getting angry, nobody else is responsible for it. I am responsible for it. If I am responsible, I can do something about it. If somebody else is responsible, obviously it's not in my hands. And that's how the difference between going to a court and, as I understand, going to a therapist. When we go to a court, somebody else is responsible. You see, this is how uh, even our idea of justice works. You know, justice is one of those things which has come up with human beings because we have a faculty of judgment. So the idea of justice and this idea of justice leads to so much anger inside. Activism, anger, demolish everything. Now, what really is justice? Justice is like somebody has done something wrong to me and there should be justice. So in ignorance, justice operates like that. And when people don't find it happening, They get angry and in intense anger ultimately blame God. And they say there is no justice in your world. But look at it the other way. When we begin to look inside, then we see the whole values are reversed. So what's happening in my life, which I feel that injustice has been done, is an evolutionary challenge for me to clear my spaces. Something has risen up inside and I can clear it. So true justice means that if I evolve through it, I have become a better human being. And somebody who was condemning me, criticizing me, was a big help. You know, there is a very nice uh, little couplet from one of the uh, ancient mystics uh, in India, Guru Nanak. People must have heard his name. And um, he says that those who criticize us uh, are actually our friends. And he gives with his touch of humor how they are friends. He says, you know what? They, um, they, instead of our going to hell, they go on our behalf and they clean our clothes, dirty linen. So, uh, there is a nice little story about a sage going to a village and uh, he says anybody has a problem, then a young man comes and says, you know, I have a lot of headache, lot of headache, too much headache, what is the reason? And the sage looks at him and uh, wisely or unwisely says, you know what, it's all the sins. Because of the sins you are having this headache. And he goes away. Then after a year when he comes, he the young man says, thank you so much, my headache has really disappeared. What did you do? Some occult action or grace. He says, no, no, I did something. I played a little psychological trick. And then he called the other villagers. And he, they, they started complaining of a little bit of headache they have started getting <laughs> he said what happened when i said that you are full of sins then everybody started looking oh here is the man he is a sinner now by doing it everybody got a little bit of his headache and he got free man now this is a <laughs> illustrative story that uh, how we can uh, by associating with a part of a person not only strengthen that tendency in the person but also uh, unwittingly share that burden That's why one of the ways mother says that when you encounter evil, she is is asked, uh, how do we cure evil in the world? So she says, if I tell you you won't believe it, uh, refuse to see it. Then she says, I know you will say that if I refuse to see evil, how am I I going to correct it? Uh, This is a Buddhist way actually, by the way. And she says, yes, there is a way. You see the beauty in the person. Now everybody has a beautiful side. You see a lot of Uh, problems issues human relationship lot of things come because this sense of justice is not tempered with kindness and love it's not that there should not be justice there exists something like a justice in the world but what is much more predominant in the world is not justice but love it's a much greater force i'm sure everybody knows it within their heart and it should always be tempered with love when we have that then we don't have to say forgive the person there is no other person to forgive. <laughs> I mean, love knows it like the, uh, in, in this way. So the first thing is not to justify. By doing it, we take away that mental component from the anger, which is very important. Uh, take away that force. We, we need to take away even that emotional component, which is, you know, the, and, and here the mind helps to see that when we are angry, actually the only person who is really suffering is me, me and me it's it's counterproductive see that's the problem with the, and and the effects are the same whether it's an animal life or a human life we may think i am angry because somebody has hurt me but adrenaline is still getting secreted steroids are still getting secreted which means blood pressure is going to rise in me which means ulcer are bound to happen in me the same things just because in animal it's given animal has to fight but now we don't have to fight. It's my emotional hurt. I'm not fighting anyone. The person with whom who has hurt me has gone somewhere else. But the emotion uh, these, uh, these strong emotions mixed with anger, they are creating a state within my body which is pathological. They are making me burn with anger, and you know, we don't know what to do about it. So some people they try to. Uh, Do uh, follow a strategy which is not a good strategy and sometimes even in context of, uh, you know, well-behaved life, um, you know, people bottle it up. They just put it inside, they repress it. Now we know that it doesn't help. Now there is a difference between repression and suppression, you know, from a yogic standpoint. Repression, I am not conscious. So, you know, you ask a person that uh, somebody has done so much hurt to you, are you angry? No, I am not angry. But the person is depressed. Now, when we repress an energy, um, like anger, it turns upon yourself. And instead of blaming somebody else, you end up blaming yourself. I am bad. You know, when people go through a heartbreak, youngsters, they come and often complain. They say, you know, I feel rejected. Why do you feel rejected? Oh, I am a bad person. I am not good. So, you have to explain (laughs) that, you know, he doesn't deserve you. (laughs) I mean, (laughs) uh, just kidding. But, you know, it, it helps to know that, well, I should not devalue myself. Now this anger changes into depression and anxiety. So that's a probably a worse form. Much better form, a better, little better form is to, you know, just speak out. But speak, you can speak out without really uh, adding all these things, emotions and desires. It's all right to express that. Look, you know, your action has hurt me, and I wish you had been a little more uh, careful. Uh, not. Condemning in the person. Condemning the person is, you always do this. Now, you know, the person is wondering, what all times I have done it. Now, there is a subtle difference between taking a specific instance and labeling. Now, labeling is when I say, you are like that. You are always, you know, fighting. You are a terrible person. Now, this is a strongly loaded judgmental statement. They don't build bridges. They break bridges. But if we take up that, you know, this particular thing that is, really I felt hurt. Uh, you could add that, well, I know that this is not what you are normally. But if we are generous enough, but you know, this particular day when you said something, it did hurt me. Don't carry it for a long time. Then the person also feels that, yes, maybe I would have hurt. It will build a bridge and better the improve the communication. So it is where we are dispassionately looking at it and communicating in a dispassionate way without bringing these elements. But just bottling it inside is certainly not helpful. Then, of course, we know that a lot of anger arises because of frustration of desires. It's a big challenge in uh, human beings. And, um, of course, we are going through an evolutionary cycle where we are exhausting all this. After a while, we won't know what to play with. Uh, rather, we may become tools of the artificial intelligence which will play with us. So, um, uh, probably that's the route desired self will take. But in a, in a person taking to an evolutionary inner life, we have to work upon it. And one simple way is moderation. Life of balance, rather than an ascetic refusal of desire, where people suddenly, you know, I see even in the ashram context, I think here it doesn't happen and that's good. Suddenly they join the ashram, they start wearing all white. So I'm a bit worried, you know. like Suddenly what has happened overnight, you don't become a, you know, and you don't become a saint by wearing a particular kind of dress. Uh, people even adopt. This is my dress, so you know it becomes a way to uh, show who you are. But we don't need to show who we are. We have to be what we want to be. <laughs> it's not something. Uh, so instead of uh, trying to crush desire in this way, it's a Hydra-headed thing. Sometimes when people do it, it takes a very weird form. Spiritual ambition. Just discussing on the way. Very dangerous thing. I am a yogi. I am a guru. Now I can teach others and you know, people catch others and want to teach. The very dangerous tendency is because spiritual ambition is far worse than normal ambition. So when it's not satisfied, they put it inside and it takes this weird form. So what is advised by Buddha is really something amazing. The very first sermon he gave, uh, first is he talked about the impermanence of things. And then he sp- spoke about the avoidance of extreme. In fact, the first message he gave was avoid the extremes. One extreme is where we just overindulge. Life is flowing and it's happy. I go as we go and, you know, wherever I see something attracted, I fall for it. This is one extreme. The other extreme is an ascetic life. Now, these two extremes are dangerous because an ascetic, when the recoil takes place, we know what has happened in some of the Babaji's case. Some of them are in courts, uh, in, in jail nowadays because probably they tried to do it. Uh, by an ascetic way. Now, if you have to do the ascetic way, then don't live in the world. Go into some cave number 22 in uh, this Parvat of Himalaya and don't meet people. That's the way asceticism is practiced. It's not practiced in this way. By being all around and trying to pose as an ascetic, it doesn't work out. So, the Buddha's way, mother speaks about it, a life of balance, a life of moderation, what can be called in yogic term, a satric life. is a very good way to... uh, take away the sting of desire. It doesn't eliminate desire, but takes away the sting. So whenever it, it mixes with anger, we know that, look, you know, I must be moderate and be more balanced, be more reasonable. And then, of course, there are some very practical techniques when to deal with anger just as an energy. When we eliminate desire, then we experience it as an energy. People who have really worked on their mind, emotions, and uh, even on the desired self, then still the anger can come. It comes from the subconscious. It can be pushed by forces which are, you know, in yoga they are called as adverse and hostile forces. And their sign is that it is quantitatively, quantitatively like a blast. And one wonders how come this person who was so much controlled, what has happened, what's gone wrong with him? Very quiet person, and suddenly, you know, he's lost control. So, they are devastating in their effect, these adverse forces, or they cloud the mind, that's how they work. So, they will, uh, like pathological jealousies, murderers hate. Now, sometimes it takes just the form of energy, tremendous energy inside, want to express, seething, all the muscles are tense. So, one can even deal with it very mechanical ways, like just observing the breath, uh, regular exercise, especially playing games is a very simple way of throwing away this energy of anger. I mean... Uh, if you read conventional psychology they advocate it sublimate the energy of anger so instead of um, and actually it is happening on the world arena you see earlier countries used to fight also they fight well but at least we have Olympics where instead of fighting with uh, weapons you compete in a game now what happens is that energy is directed into sports it's a channelization you have that feeling My country and I must bring for my country. But it's better than actually taking a sword and fighting out with each other. So turning it into sports is a very good way. And then you have the next level where even the countries are gone. At least in cricket now there are, you know, uh, all teams mixing up all over the world. So this is one route if we take to regular sports in ashram it's very much encouraged. Uh, it's compulsory actually, and it's a very nice way to sublimate these energies. Sports, simple thing like sports. Also, sports teaches us many things. Like you know, victory and loss are part of life. Success and failure are today. Uh, we lose tomorrow. We win. Uh, someday we just don't play the game. But after the game is over, we are friends who have a cup of tea. You know, even politicians learn this. You know, they will fight tooth and nail before the election. Once they are all seated in the parliament, they may fight in the parliament, but when they go to the canteen, they are all friends. Because, you know, they have realized. <laughs> they are all friends, hand in glove in whatever <laughs> evil or good is taking place. So this, but but we tend to label. It's a moment when people get angry. So this energy can be channelized by sports, by exercises, by deep breathing, because in anger, breath gets affected. So, by the reverse process, all the body mechanisms are interconnected. By reverse process, you can again have an effect on these centers of anger. It's like a reverse feedback. So, it's a very simple way. Sometimes, anything which is rhythmic, because all these forces of anger, lust, greed, they disbalance the rhythm. So, what happens when these things are happening, everything becomes chaotic in our life in our thought process, in emotions. So when we play music, something like that. So what it's doing, it is retraining the rhythm. It is providing some kind of rhythm as a background to which we can tune. You see, when all the great musicians, they play music, you have in the background this, uh, somebody who is playing the sum, the bass swara. Now it's very important, we may not... Understand it. But this base is important because it gives us uh, where we are going straight. So this is a very simple way through music. Again, it tends to bring back the rhythm. A very simple method is when we are very angry, just to step back and wait for a while. See how this energy works. Yes, it will be seething inside. But if we just become an observant witness, after a while it loses hold. Because it's a very intense energy. And human system cannot take it. So after a while it tends to uh, lose its hold and slowly, you know, diffuse all around. Of course, if somebody enters, sensitive person at that moment, comes in contact, he will feel it. And finally we come to the spiritual ways of handling anger. Now, none of these methods including mindful meditation, they are not spiritual. They are psychophysical mechanisms. It's alright. That kind of meditation where you just observe the breathing, is it's helpful. But... I am not labeling it as spiritual because we are not coming in contact with something higher and deeper within us. Now all kinds of mental control and these techniques are all subject to failure at some point. That's how the Gita puts it and Sri beautifully says in Essays on the Gita, even the mind of the sage can still wander. So he says, what is the ultimate solution? He says, Sri Krishna gives the solution as dwell within me, give yourself to me. Because it's, that's the ultimate safety and that safety is of course we know for us is just calling the mother's name, turning to her, offering all our uh, hurt and guilt and anger to her and she's there to take it. You know how beautifully when mother said that, why are you coming? You want to come and pose as a very sadhu bacha before me? You come and give me your faults. And she says that in one of her very interesting talks that not rejection but offering. Bear your burden of the undivine, anti-divine, and offer it to me, and I will take it. So we can just give it to her, and if we really do it with sincerity, our heart is freed because we know that you know she is the one. First of all, it's a there is a cha- exchange of consciousness. What is the exchange? We give uh, like you know she was swallowing the poison. What does he give in return? He gives peace, benevolence. So we come in contact with the mother's consciousness through this most bitter, embittered consciousness. But she takes it. What she returns is sweetness and changes it into sweetness. And how this happens, this also is worth observing. Suddenly our mind will begin to look at it very differently. The thought structure changes. Uh, our, uh, for example, you know, I know of a lady who, whom I used to meet uh, every week, um, uh, last six months of her life. Uh, So, she one day suddenly tells me, I have to tell you something very important. I said, okay, what is it? Maybe, you know, some problem in the body or something. She said, you know, I have made a discovery. I said, I appreciate, you know, at 80s, she is making a wonderful discovery. She says, you know, I have forgiven my husband. Now, you know, it was many decades back. So, I said, I am very touched, but what went through? She said, you know, I remembered the Gita that, men are bound by their nature and so whatever he did it was his nature it's not that he he didn't ask for it he was born this way it was his constitution and he did what he did because he was bound by his nature and uh, so i forgive him because uh, how can you blame somebody who is himself a victim you know it's like he's a victim of his own nature he's in a prison so actually uh, when we take to spiritual life, very often when we find such people, it changes into the force of anger, can even change into compassion when we have practiced. We see how much they are suffering. So, what is the way we to release from the heart? People often say, practice forgiveness. Well, those who can do it, it's very nice. But my method which I follow, which I found, you know, uh, what mother has suggested, you go and pray for them. Because you know how much they must be suffering. So go and pray for them. That may their hearts be filled with peace and kindness. And may they not be so unkind and ungenerous towards not only me. Because they must be doing it with many people. So pray for them. And it helps your heart become free. Also there is a wideness because of the magnanimity. And of course it helps this world. It, instead of you know we talk about cre- helping in the new creation. We don't help in the new creation when we fight with each other. That Definitely one thing is sure. But uh, by this act we make her work a little, like a little squirrel. We do our little bit to make it a little more easier by praying for somebody who may not be praying for himself. Uh, so this is the spiritual way. And then of course when we contact the higher regions, uh, forces of peace, equanimity is a fundamental practice of yoga, and over uh, decades what I have seen is, this is what is very often missed. So everybody who takes to yoga starts practicing concentration, meditation and all kinds of things. But if you read through the synthesis and essays on Gita and through the letters, maximum pages are devoted to one thing which is called as equanimity. shobindu says it's the base. Without equanimity you can't go far in yoga. So equanimity, right from day one, to just call equanimity, to make it like an object of whole one year that I am going to practice equanimity regardless of everything. And, you know, um, equanimity is much deeper than holding it inside. That's not equanimity, that's a show. The nice little story where Yudhishthir, you know, Dronacharya asks all his disciples, what lessons have you learned? They say, we have learned all the lessons you have taught. Yudhishthir says, I have learned the first one but I am stuck with the second. So everybody laughs at him, even Dronacharya gets very angry and almost gives him a slap. So Yudhishthir says, now I will show you how I have learned the first lesson. He says, the first lesson was speak the truth. So I have learned to speak the truth. The second was control your temper. And even now, when outwardly I looked very calm, inwardly I was boiling (laughs) when you slapped me. And the thought that crossed my mind is that I am a prince. And today you are slapping me and look what I, what I can do tomorrow when I become the king. So he says this thought crossed me. Outwardly, he looked very calm. But inwardly, the state of equanimity was not there. So I think equanimity is a base practice uh, that you know, we all need to engage with. And of course, uh, finally, the more and more we live, there is a change of consciousness. Uh, in this yoga, not too many do's and don'ts. But one thing to be attained is the psychic state. The closer we get to the soul, it's always, uh, there's a beautiful word in the Gita, Atmarati. We have this spontaneous source of happiness. Why would we want uh, happiness from outside? So we become a source of love. We don't need something from outside to nourish our heart. We don't need somebody to give us something to feel fulfilled because the source of fulfillment is within us. And when these attacks come, last word, uh, the advice of Sri Aurobindo is very simple, very clear. When the attacks of anger come, don't rush to speak out and, you know, dash out a terrible letter. Or go to a friend, not well-meaning friend, ill-meaning friend. You know, this is, person has done so and such a thing to me and the friend says, yeah, I know, He's like that. Then you know, come let's have a drink, making it worse. <laughs> so, whom should we call the only friend who understands? And that is the Divine Mother. So he says, whenever these attacks come, just call her name. And so beautiful, so simple. Ma, 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 ma. And that takes care of everything. Um, I'll stop here. It's almost 45 minutes. And invite any questions or any experiences of anyone.